Hello and welcome to Business Line News Podcast. I'm Nivedita Varadarajan and this is News Explained. Over the past week, we have seen several important developments in Afghanistan. The Taliban has stormed the capital Kabul and has seized power. With this, the two decades of the American war on terrorism has come to a very futile end. There are two big issues at play here. One, why they left and the other, how they left. Why they left is a very simple question to answer. It is because the war has been extremely unpopular in the US. Three presidents have tried to leave Afghanistan, George Bush Jr., Barack Obama and Trump, and only Biden has been successful. Biden has been credited for completing a long-standing agenda and not kicking the can to the next president to solve the issue. And many have praised him in the US for doing so. The second part, the one on how they left, is the one that has caused many a worry. Critics of the US government say that they, the Americans, left in a hurry and they did so at the cost of the Afghan people. They say the government placed their trust in Taliban, which is a known terrorist organization, an organization they came to control in the war, and they left without any guarantees for the people and they didn't even talk to the Afghan government before they left. On the 22nd of July, I spoke to Observer Research Foundation's Kirti M. Shah on the various players and the factors there. What has happened since then? How did the situation degrade so much? And how did the government fall so fast? What is going to happen in Afghanistan next? Kirti M. Shah joins us today to help us understand more about the topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Kirti. Thank you, Nivedita. So, when we spoke last, we were talking about how the Afghan government was planning to, was giving a pushback, was fighting against the Taliban. What happened? How, how did this ha- happen in less than one month? So, yeah, things have got really bad, uh, really fast. And I don't think anyone anticipated uh, on how uh, soon things would uh, get so bad. Um, and this is partially because... Um, what was Taliban's military strategy, which we now understand in hindsight. Last time we had spoken, I was talking about how their strategy has been to sort of capture rural areas, seize control of large areas, and then move towards the provincial capitals. They have been doing that, but that allowed them to sort of gain control over major highways. So once they made it to the capital, even if they were fighting the Afghan forces in the capital, the Afghan forces were cut off from uh, getting reinforcements, from their supply routes, um, new ammunition not coming in. So like we saw in a number of cases, the Afghan forces had to sort of just surrender or flee. uh, And that got them a lot of bad press. But this was the real situation that the Taliban's military strategy was exactly this. And this led to a domino effect, uh, which is that one district falls and then the other district falls and then the other district falls and people know that the Taliban are coming and they sort of find it futile to uh, fight when they know that the possibility of defeat is higher. Another reason why the government fell so fast is when we look at it in terms of the Ashraf Ghani government, it, there was confusion in terms of how quickly Ghani was interested in changing different ministers, be it the defense minister, be it interior minister, the military chief, different um, provincial police chiefs or, dist- or police, police chiefs in different parts of the country. And all of that sort of affects the battlefield performance because as a they need to be they had to be a united force uh, and know that their government is standing behind them. But now we know that wasn't the case because there was little unity of command um, and the leadership was established. The leadership established in, in order to fight that sort of gets eroded with all this sort of 
political interference which came from the government. Um, and how you said that we had, we believe last time that there were cases of the Afghan forces sort of pushing back and fighting the Taliban. Uh, but on a large scale, of course, that did prove extremely futile because those were just small cases. And um, while they did not receive any press, given the widespread sort of corruption in the defense forces, uh, senior commanders sort of taking money for themselves, uh, pocketing different salaries, selling guns on the black market, all of these reasons, the Taliban's military strategy, political in interference, and problems with the Afghan forces, all of them sort of collectively led to the situation getting so bad so fast. Uh, one major criticism the Afghan government faces quite a lot is that they did not have the will to fight. But then the thing is that the Americans were also deeply involved in planning and strategy. So where did the Americans go wrong then? Oh, well, the Americans got, went wrong on a lot of fronts because, yes, they knew they had to leave. Uh, and they focused simply on sort of taking their soldiers and their personnel in the country out in a staggered manner. But what they did not anticipate was, of course, things getting bad so fast, and they didn't have a contingency plan. So all the sort of horrific, uh, but now yet historic visuals and videos and photographs that we see on social media of people leaving the U.S. embassy, of U.S. of people clinging on to U.S. planes, they they should have planned for that in advance, uh, and they and they didn't do that. I think it was July, uh, August eighth, or something like that, when some there were uh, someone asked Biden about the situation in Afghanistan. And he said, there's this Taliban coming to power in Kabul is very unlikely. So that's not going to happen. Um, so it was, of course, a major intelligence failure. Initially, they had said, oh, it will take four months. And they had said, oh, it might be sooner than that. Uh, and even just a week before everything went extremely bad, they still didn't grasp the seriousness of the situation. And they didn't have any contingency plans in place, not only for Americans, but even the Afghans that have worked with the US through the 20 years, translators, interpreters, women's rights activists, they didn't have any plan for them. Uh, and that not only has led to terrible PR and visuals, which is gonna haunt the rest of the world forever, uh, but has also caused a lot of grief for the Afghans. One of the things which was more surprising to me is the way the, uh, the uh, president left Afghanistan uh, what role can they play now, seeing that they are not in Afghanistan? What can they do to contribute further, uh, contribute in the fight against the Taliban? I am highly, I really think it's unlikely that Ashraf Ghani is going to have ever any role in the political future of Afghanistan. Uh, whatever little goodwill the people had for him vanished just like that the moment the news broke. And that's not only the people of Afghanistan, but even the people in his own government, which he selected, because when they heard the news, the shock that came to them that he sort of fled the coup uh, was, of course, extremely devastating. So I think Ghani is done and he has no longer, he doesn't have any political future in Afghanistan. I, of kind, course, of, why, I kind yeah. of understand why he left. I mean, because the last time such a, when the Taliban came, it did not end very well for the leadership at that time. So you, one sure. can't blame him for leaving, but... What can, yeah, yeah, what yeah, can, no, I understand. It's the fear of you know being being the president and having the Taliban literally knocking on your doors uh, is going to cause you so much anxiety and fear that you would want to leave the country. And yeah. yet you are the president of the country, and you're not the only one who's scared. The entire country is in the midst of this horror movie that they've never saw, never thought would happen. So they're not only fearful about 
you know, our government let us down, but knowing, yes, our government let us down, and now our president has, he's completely safe. He has flown away and he's okay. So it was just him and his core group which flew away. But there was still a lot of political leaders like Vice President Amrullah Saleh, who remained in the country. He's still and there. Are ready. He's, still, he's there. still there. Absolutely. And he's saying, I think it was yesterday that he said that uh, the Afghan caretaker president. Yes, that he is technically the caretaker president and that he's sort of, you know, mounting this resistance. Now, how successful that will be, I don't know. But that gives so much hope to the Afghan people to know that our leaders have not deserted us. And they are, yes, they might be as afraid as us, but they're still here and they're still at least attempting to protect us against the Taliban. So I think Ashraf Ghani uh, made a emotional choice that's going to majorly cost not only his political future, but has also led to the situation that we see today because the Taliban could just simply walk in. Um, but other political leaders we've seen, like Hamid Karzai, just met with the Taliban, uh, I think a few hours ago, mm-hmm. Abdullah Abdullah and Bulbuddin Hekmatyar, who's actually a former terrorist from the 90s, they're sort of seeing on how can they, what sort of coordination or what sort of um, agreement they can reach with the Taliban now. And I suspect the Taliban will be eager at some level to accommodate some of these political actors, not Saleh, of course, not Abdullah Saleh, because he's been one of the harshest critics of the Taliban, but people like Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, uh, actors that have always been opposed to Ashraf Ghani one, actors that might that have strong relations with regional countries that are not on best of terms with the United States. And the Taliban would sort of want to work with them uh, just so that they can have, they can project that they have this inclusive government, that they're listening to different stakeholders. So while Bani is completely done, there's still political leaders in the country that are attempting to determine the fate of the country. Uh, just like uh, Ghani left, many people also want to, millions of Afghanistanis want to leave. And what struck me was uh, the pictures and reports of people fleeing. What, and when we were looking at this, the European leaders, uh, Macron, uh, Angela Merkel, they all came out and said we need to contain the uh, uh, contain the refugee crisis in the region. Where will they go to? They can't go to Turkmenistan or Tajikistan. Tajikistan did not even allow Ghani to come in. There's no scope of them allowing everyday Afghans to come in. Pakistan's not, not going to let them in. Iran is in a crisis. Where will they go? Well, I have no idea because unfortunately, I think that the people who really have to escape will end up making it to Pakistan or Iran only, because the US has only the US uh, and the EU especially have just been focused on getting their people, their diplomatic staff, and the few the small group of Afghans that worked with them with their armies or their embassies. They've been focused on just getting them out of the country, and they do not care for the everyday Afghans, women, children, men at all. And ever since the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015, the EU, of course, as we know, they've sort of tightened their migration laws and they've made it more difficult uh, for people to, to come to an, and seek asylum in the EU. In fact, in 2015, I think Afghans at that time were the second largest group of people that were fleeing to the EU after the Syrians. Yeah. Um, so, so while you know millions might have applied for asylum, uh, at this point, I doubt how much the EU is going to be open to Afghans coming in. Uh, and that's extremely worrying. So we do have an imminent refugee crisis that is on our hands, uh, but we there's still there's no clarity in terms of who is going to allow them to come in. Different countries might have 
you know, certain numbers that they put in. I think Canada has done that. Uh, India is trying to facilitate certain Hindus and Sikhs to come to India. Um, Uganda is taking people uh, on behest of America. It's the third largest uh, refugee nation, refugee caretaker in the world, which is surprising to me. It's a thing I found out yesterday and I'm really surprised. Kudos for you. No, so, I mean, it's extremely distressing. But like we were talking about earlier, these are things that the EU and the US should have planned for in advance when they knew that they are leaving, when they yeah. knew that there's a prospect of the Taliban not just coming to power uh, in its entirety, but at least getting into some sort of power sharing agreement, they would have had to know that they have a migration crisis on their hands. And what can they do now? What sort of legislation could, could they have passed before that would have eased at least specific groups of people, at least women rights activists whose lives are literally under threat um, or just larger groups of people. They could have planned for this earlier, but they didn't. Uh, so things are gonna get bad. Um, and unfortunately, there's not much being done to sort of contain that. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden said that the U.S. was not interested in fighting and dying in another war. Uh, NSA Jake Sullivan basically blamed Afghanistan for not having the will to fight. Will uh, USA come back again if they're not coming? It's a loaded question. Will they ever come back? I think they might. I do not think they're coming back. I do not think they should come back. Uh, what has happened in Afghanistan sort of is just major. You can the only way to describe it in terms of the U.S. is superpower humiliation. Yeah, there is nothing for them left in Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan know that the U.S. has betrayed us the way they left. They might have made a lot of gains over twenty years, and the Afghan people might thank them for that. They but understand, all gone, that, but that's all gone now. It, it's all up. It's all up in the air. There's such a huge threat to it. So while they might be initially grateful for the U.S. getting them to a certain point, the manner in which they left is, um, is just absolutely horrible. So I don't think at all that the U.S. Uh, will be going back into Afghanistan. And even the response in the U.S. to it has been so mixed. It's obviously it's become a partisan issue where people have been criticizing Biden and supporting Biden. Uh, but Biden has just been sort of blaming, Afghan, blaming the Afghan leaders. It's been say, he's been saying that you know American troops are not going to go and die in a war when Afghan forces are not willing to fight themselves. So these are great, I mean, these are statements which appeal to a domestic audience in the US and it's understandable that he's saying that. But even in his speech, there was no mention of the suffering of Afghans. There was no, no mention of, Absolutely, there was no mention of the threat that women face. Mm. Um, so, the entire situation has been is going to be so bad for the US in terms of their interests elsewhere in the world as well uh, that I'm 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 yeah I'm very sure that there's they're not going to come back ever here's a load another load question for you uh, is this does this whole Afghan event mark the downfall uh, of the US as a superpower well yeah that's a tough one because I think um, I mean, the United States is still, uh, you know, one of the, the most powerful countries in the world. But I think the situation in Afghanistan is just one instance of it sort of rethinking its foreign policy regarding its, its foreign policy regarding foreign intervention or sort of believing that they can go into different countries uh, and nation build or apparently Joe Biden said they were not trying to nation build in Afghanistan. So I think it will... Yeah, too late. Absolutely. 
I think that's definitely going to lead to a foreign policy rethink on what are what is the U.S.'s uh, foreign interests and how can they best meet that interest without a large military presence. So who are its allies in the region that they can trust? Uh, what are the sort of regional groupings that they can give more responsibility to to take care of the Afghanistan situation? Um, so as for a superpower, I don't know, but it is definitely extremely humiliating uh, what has happened and it will force them to rethink. I really hope it does force them to rethink uh, it's the decisions that they've made in Afghanistan and the larger region. Uh, moving a little closer to Afghanistan, there's one player who's a major player who has been quite silent so far, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries. Why are they quiet? I think uh, people are just trying to see how things shape up because it's still very early days to get an idea of what sort of government the Taliban will be uh, will form. What are the sort of regional countries that will, uh, you know, uh, recognize the Taliban government? So even Pakistan surprisingly has not recognized the Taliban government yet. But Pakistan is very happy about them, right? Imran Khan said they're breaking the shackles of colonialism. Oh, absolutely. Talib uh, Pakistan's extremely happy because in the Taliban's victory is actually a victory for Pakistan. They have wanted this for so long. And even in their wildest dreams, they would not have believed yeah. that the Taliban would come to power in Kabul entirely on its own, not in a power sharing agreement, nothing which is negotiated, but it literally right handed over, absolutely handed over the keys to the presidential palace uh, and just walked on in. So this is, uh, you know, Pakistan's just, it just, I mean, they're rejoicing. They're absolutely rejoicing. And when you sort of uh, look beyond that and you try to, you know, talk to Pakistanis on social media, which is a very bad idea. But if you do that and you try to understand the reason for their sort of happiness, they say, oh, it's not about so much the Taliban coming to power as much as it is the defeat of the U.S. in our backyard. So they've been sort of trying to project it like that, but they've been absolutely jubilant um, and they've been sort of trying to, um, you know, show that, you know, the Taliban has changed. You know, they're saying they're going to make an inclusive government. They're say there are so many women, the instances of women reporting on TV. So they're trying to show that, you know, why were you thinking that Taliban rule is going to be so bad? Look, these guys aren't so bad. All these liberals no. were thinking that this is what's going to happen. So they've been sort of trying to fuel uh, that ridiculous delusional image that the Taliban haven't changed. Uh, but yeah, they've been very happy. Uh, then there's the question of the United Nations and what the UNSC is doing. What are they doing? They've been very quiet too. I don't know what the UN can do. They have just made statements. They yeah. have made the typical statements like they do, that we cannot abandon Afghanistan, that the international community must work together, we must unite, we must ensure that Afghanistan is not used as a safe haven against terrorists. But there's literally not much that they can do. Um, and, their, and their statements have been, uh, I, mean, I mean, not surprising really. They've just been really diplomatic. Um, and I think they're also just trying to see what sort of, how different countries in the region uh, what is the process with which they begin to legitimize the government and recognize the government? But there's nothing that the UN can do as usual. It's all statements. It's more talk, less action. Um, so that's just been, you know, the first few days. That's all that they can really say. India is in a very difficult, interesting position, I would say, because they are the, uh, they head the India heads the UNSC right now. What can India do? What can India do in its special roles? It's a role that. India doesn't have quite often. So what can India do in this special role? 
So I think the, uh, it, it's, you know, ironic that India has this position at this moment. And I think yeah. what India has been trying to do is simply ensure that Afghanistan stays on the agenda and that everyone is watching Afghanistan uh, very closely. And that's happening anyway. But that Afghanistan stays on the agenda of the UN Security Council. So just to monitor how things unfold. See, this is all still early. This is It's been, you know, less than a week. So we don't know how things are going to pan out. Uh, but just uh, watching things very deliberately uh, and watching things very closely to see what happens. Um, it can't really advocate for the Afghans' interests at this point uh, because every, I mean, it, India's the only one who's been advocating for Afghanistan's interests until now, but there's not much that they can do given that the Taliban are so powerful and that sort of, given that India everyone, also now Everyone has, is legitimizing them. Everyone's legitimizing them and India's also now, you know, forced to rethink uh, that our worst possible scenario in Afghanistan is coming true. And what is it that we need to do as a country first uh, with our relations with Afghanistan? Um, so, I mean, it's a complicated situation, uh, but I'm very pessimistic about what sort of role uh, the UN can play, at least in the short term. In the long term, if the Taliban, uh, you know, begin con continuing the same practices that they did in the 90s, of course, the talk of sanctions, uh, and all of that will come in later. And but right now, will eventually come in, I'm sure. I'm, I'm 90% sure. 20 years yeah, down the line, we'll have the same conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, a, it's sort of, everyone's just sort of waiting and watching, seeing how things will unfold, uh, and then sort of deciding what's the next step for them. So how will all this regional, uh, imbal uh, regional instability affect India? One thing many people are pointing out is that Kashmir, we can see a rise in insurgency activity in Kashmir because they, uh, I think I saw a graph on Twitter the other day which showed in the 80s there was a lot of uh, violence in Kashmir and they said that that's because of Taliban which was a, which was a strong force in the neighborhood and they're yeah. spreading that will come back because Taliban's in control again. Yeah. So the Taliban had made a statement uh, uh, some time ago when they had asked about um, what their relationship with India would be like and what their uh, policy on Kashmir would be. And the Taliban had said that, you know, we don't interfere uh, in the internal matters of other nations. Not that we should be going to believe the Taliban at any time soon, but they're sort of trying to act as this, you know, quote unquote, responsible power that doesn't interfere uh, in the matters of other nations. But uh, yes, there can be a blowback in Kashmir uh, because there have been reports of, you know, Jaish e Mohammed and Lashkar e Taiba working alongside Taliban fighters in training camps in Afghanistan. So they could expand their training facilities, learn more military tactics, and that could have a potential blowback in Kashmir. When the Taliban had made that statement regarding Kashmir, it really upset Pakistan because here they were thinking that they have, you know, nurtured this group in Afghanistan. They have, uh, you know, they want to get that strategic depth in Afghanistan so that they can continue their attacks in Kashmir and then not being able to do that. But I'm sure that Pakistan will encourage it and push for it um, to see how its um, groups that are active in Kashmir, what sort of things can they learn from the Taliban um, and, 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 and how they can continue fighting in Kashmir. But for India, it's also on a, on a more geopolitical and on a larger level, uh, the Taliban's power in Afghanistan is also worrying because it means that uh, ties between, of course, Pakistan, the Taliban, and now China are going to grow. So that means that two of India's so-called biggest rivals are going to be having a larger footprint that's going to be steadily expanding 
in a country that India has a large stake in and that India has investments in. Uh, so that's extremely worrying for India as well. Speaking of Pakistan and the lack of con Pakistan and uh, uh, the Taliban also have friction points. It's not like they don't have friction points, right? For one, Taliban doesn't recognize the Duran line. Mm -hmm. So how yeah, is that so, so one of the main uh, uh, reasons for Pakistan's support for the Taliban has been uh, one is, of course, Pakistan's desire to gain the so-called strategic depth, which means that, you know, we can have more space in Afghanistan, which would allow us in event of a military confrontation with India to use Afghan territory in our fight against India. But they have also wanted to appease the Taliban, which at the start was predominantly Pashtun, so that if they're on their side, they stop making claims for a larger area across the Durand line or the Afghan park border for the so-called land called Pashtunistan. Um, so I think Taliban know that, uh, you know, bringing up Pashtunistan uh, with Pakistan uh, is sort of a sore point. But the, the thing is, the issue isn't that. The issue is that Taliban can already use the Pashtun majority areas of Pakistan as their own land. Their and families live there. in Pakistan. Absolutely. So their families live there. They have their training camps over there. So for the Taliban, they can just very easily cross over the border at any time as they have been doing. Um, and that land is tech not technically, uh, but they sort of Pakistan has allowed them to believe that this land is also theirs, um, that they can use in order to wage their insurgency in Afghanistan. So I don't think this issue is going to come up because it's already very easy for them. Uh, what about terrorism in the larger sense in not only South Asia, but in uh the Western Asia also. We are already we already know that uh, USA has had USA and the rest of the world has had issues with ISIS. How will this instability here play out with relation to the Western Asian regions, with the Western Asian countries? So I think Taliban play an important role in this because a lot of um, China's reaching out to the Taliban, Russia's reaching out to the Taliban, Iran's outreach to the Taliban have been centered around the Taliban acting as um, sort of an opposition or a bulk work against the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. So Iran has been worried about the Islamic State and has thought that why don't we use the Taliban, one, to fight the US in our backyard, but also to use the Taliban in order to prevent the Islamic State from attacking us. And that's been the same, same thing with Russia, which has wanted to protect the Central Asian republics. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the larger region, people will see the Taliban initially, at least as they've been seeing it so far, that the Taliban will prevent the growth of the Islamic State. But what it could also mean is that given how successful the Taliban have been, it is definitely also going to sort of boost the morale of you know, militants, jihadists, and terrorists all over the subcontinent once they see the Taliban's success um, and sort of have their own idea of how the Taliban have come uh, to political power. So the Islamic State is still an international organization that it has, uh, you know, different sort of branches of franchises in different parts of the world. But the Taliban is limited and it has always been limited only to Afghanistan. So uh, I believe it might just sort of inspire jihadists uh, to relook at uh, what their objectives are and compare them, compare that to the Taliban and see how they have been so successful. So you're afraid that they're going to learn the long, uh, wrong lesson of just wait it out, the US and NATO will get bored at one point and leave. 
Well, of course, it definitely uh, what's happened will definitely show that NATO and the U.S. alliance uh, or any alliance with the United States is not uh, something that can you know always be there and it's not always strong. It is fragile, so that's one thing that people will not trust the U.S. Uh, but it will also lead to sort of this glorification of political Islam, uh, depending on how the Taliban form their government, and that will inspire different groups uh, that you know. Seek to establish a so-called Islamic state. This might not be ISIS, but like an Islamic Somebody, state, yeah. Islamic society, uh, and they see what, how has the Taliban done that, and sort of seek inspiration from that and apply it in their own country. You use the words trust in the United States. Oh, it's not. That's an important thing for me because many nations across the world use that trust as something as it's like say take Taiwan for example. They use sure. the trust in the United States to counter China. What What are the lessons that can possibly be learned for people in Japan or in Taiwan who are looking at this? And they must be worried, right? Because USA might up and leave once uh, once popular opinion changes. In uh, yeah, I think the lesson is I think the lesson for them is don't trust the United States, or at least question: Can we trust the United States? Because, uh, like we, I think we had discussed this last time. The United States doesn't lose wars; it loses interest. Yeah. So if you no longer serve their strategic interests, or like the case in Afghanistan, they realize that they cannot, in any way, get the outcome that they want. They will leave. Um, so I think this is a lesson for all countries out there who sort of uh, seek protection under the United States sort of military umbrella. Not to completely disregard the U.S.'s military power because it still has that strength, but to question it and to know that it is possible that they too can fail, um, and sort of reevaluate uh, what they want from the U.S. Their alliance with the U.S. Then, finally, I want to come back to India and India's interest. Uh, the Chabahar port in Iran was basically constructed with Iran and India, so we can have an easy access to Afghanistan and sidestep. Uh, Pakistan. What will happen to the project? It's been very controversial in the past. What could happen to the project? So there's very uh, while Chabahar port is active, it has not progressed as quickly as it should have, and that has largely been because of bureaucratic inefficiencies on part of India and Iran as well. But also because Iran was coming out of uh, Iran, I mean sanctions were imposed once uh, Trump left the JCPOA nuclear deal. Yeah. So I think once a deal is uh, sort of agreed to with the international community and Iran, uh, and once things progress on that part, India, of course, is going to push uh, to you know use that port as much as it can. Now it's it really. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, Chabahar. We love to look at it as um, something which is you know alongside the Gwadar port and how we can compete with Pakistan. Uh, but it's going to be a long time before the port. Uh, is operational to the point that India can have very easy access to Afghanistan. It requires, uh, you know, a proper rail system from Chabahar up into northern uh, Iran and then into Afghanistan. Uh, Taliban now are in power. They they uh, control all the border, all the border checkpoints. They control. So now, sort of, the ball is in the Taliban's court as well to decide what is its sort of relationship with India. It knows that India is interested in. Uh, you know this level of trade with Afghanistan. India is also deciding: Are we still interested uh, in you know maintaining that sort of relationship if the Taliban is in power? 
so i think uh, while you know indians were very optimistic and very hopeful about uh, the potential of chabahar port while it does hold a lot of potential uh, it's more long term potential once all the other different moving parts such as you know sanctions of iran a nuclear deal uh, a railroad system a good government in kabul so once those things are sort of stabilized it's only after that uh, can things really get moving thank you keerthi for talking to us today it's been a pleasure talking to you Uh, thank thank you. you all for listening to us today. You can watch this entire program on YouTube, and you can also listen to uh, all our other podcasts for ABL, Spotify, and Google podcast channels. Thank you all for listening to us.